1 Samuel 12 in your Bible. And we're going to read just a portion of this uh, to kind of really introduce it. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, chapter 12. But I want to read just the first five verses. And then we're going to drop down to verse 20 and read uh, the rest of the chapter. So after you've found 1 Samuel 12 in your Bible, once you stand, let's uh, read it together. You follow along as we read. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to, to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Now, verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things, which can profit or cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, Both you and your king will be swept away. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful today for your incredible, amazing grace. And Lord, even though many of us have been saved for a lot of years, we still uh, never are ceasing to be amazed at uh, your grace in our lives. We know we don't deserve your salvation. We don't deserve any of your goodness, and yet you have uh, showered your grace upon us. You have redeemed us. You have saved us from sin. You have freed us from the bondage of sin. And, Lord, we thank you that uh, we are now your people. And, Lord, we uh, join with your people in the Old Testament to give you praise. And, Lord, we uh, unite our hearts again this morning in worship. And, Lord, we... uh, once again, ask that if there are any in this place that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they will come to know him in his saving grace. And Lord, we pray today that our hearts would be focused on you, that our minds would be in tune with what you want us to not only learn, but apply to our lives so that we can uh, uh, follow you and be your people and uh, please you in every regard. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you mention the idea of leaving a legacy in our day and time, 
most people immediately think of leaving a monetary inheritance. But according to God's perspective, that is not the greatest legacy. There is something far more important to leave for your children and future generations to come. This kind of legacy is not something we leave for others. It is something we leave in others. The psalmist David wrote in Psalm 90 verse 12, Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. True godly wisdom leads us to consider each and every day and to make it count for something that will outlive our lives. And those of you who are young this morning may not be thinking much about leaving a legacy, but those of us who are older had better be thinking about it. In our present text, Samuel is thinking about this deeply. He is wanting to leave a lasting impact on the nation of Israel. He has faithfully served God from his youth, and now he's old and gray-headed. At this point, he's ready to turn the leadership of the nation over to its new king, Saul. But he wants to make certain that the people of God will continue to be faithful to God. So he's leaving this legacy, which is the greatest legacy anyone can leave. The legacy of a godly life and a powerful charge to stay faithful to God. Even though they now have a king like all the other nations, they must not turn aside from following the Lord with all their hearts. They must continue to fear the Lord and to serve him in truth with all their hearts. Now, I don't know about you, but this is the kind of legacy I want to leave for all those following behind me. This is the greatest kind of legacy we could ever choose to leave. The question all of us need to be asking ourselves this morning is, what kind of legacy am I leaving? And far too many seem to be preoccupied with building a career or building their dream home, or putting all their focus on material gain, instead of making sure they are able to leave the kind of legacy that Samuel left for the people of God. Now, to refresh your memory, at the end of chapter 11, Saul led the people in a great victory over the Ammonites, and he saved the people of Jabesh-Gilead. On the heels of this great victory, Samuel suggested to the people that they all go to Gilgal and establish Saul fully as king and renew their commitment to God. Saul has already been chosen by God. He's been anointed privately by Samuel. He's been publicly proclaimed as king after being confirmed through the casting of lots But up until this point, he had done really very little that you might consider kingly. In fact, he went back to his farming. But with this decisive victory, the people are now ready to make him king in the fullest sense of the word. 
So Samuel understands that it is his time now to pull back from the leadership role and to hand the reins over to Saul. And what we have in chapter 12 is Samuel's last address to the nation before making this transition. He's getting, it, he's getting old, and the people now have a king to lead them. So it is time for him to pull back and to tur- turn things over to Saul. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't continue to see Samuel in the role of the Lord's prophet. But his role as the primary leader of Israel will be turned over now to the new king. But in many ways, this is Samuel's swan song. It is his last address to the people in this key leadership role. He is now old and gray, but as we have seen, he has been faithful to Yahweh all his life. We actually got to know Samuel even before he was born, as his mother Hannah prayed for a child. And God opened her womb, and she dedicated him to the service of the Lord all the days of his life. He grew up in the temple. He served as a priest and then as a judge and ultimately as the Lord's prophet. But now he's getting close to the end of his life. And his greatest concern is what kind of spiritual legacy he can leave for God's people. Now, chapter 12 falls naturally into three sections. So we're going to see three aspects of this great legacy that is being left. First of all, we see a faithful man. A faithful man. Look with me again at verse 1. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. But I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Now, that last statement means you have been able to observe my life in your midst. He's laying his life out there as a testimony to the Lord. He also mentions the king that he has appointed, and he pretty much puts the blame for asking for a king on the people. But notice he says, the king is here, and so I must step aside to allow him to be the leader. Notice he also says, my sons are with you. Now, most preachers focus on the fact that Samuel's sons did not have the same godly character that he had. And most point back to what it says in chapter 8, verse 3. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And I have emphasized that this is the one blemish on Samuel's record, he saw what happened to Eli's sons, and yet he turned around and failed as a father, just like Eli did. But here in chapter 12, verse 2, the text 
may be indicating something we might miss. The phrase, my sons are with you, may be indicating that his sons are now among the people in the sense that they are no longer in leadership. It is very possible that unlike Eli, Samuel had disciplined them and removed them from their public office. This phrase, my sons are with you, may mean that he has reduced them now to the level of the common people. And if that's what this is saying, then our respect for Samuel goes up even higher. But what these first two verses in chapter 12 emphasize is that Samuel really had lived in a fishbowl all his life. Having grown up in the temple, his life was always in public view and always under public scrutiny. By the way, this is one of the reasons why pastor's kids often struggle. But Samuel flourished in this role. And as we have seen in this passage, he has no skeletons in the closet. Go on to verse 3. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. Samuel had walked in personal integrity, so now he's saying, If I have wronged anyone in any way, declare it to me now, and I will make it right. Now, the only one who can make this kind of statement publicly is one who knows he's not guilty of any of this. I mean, you don't invite this kind of public inspection unless you know you're innocent. But here, Samuel opens himself up like an open book. Samuel would have done well in our Me Too generation. He had served God faithfully from his childhood. And now that he is old, he can express these kinds of issues and questions knowing he has walked with integrity. Look at verse 4. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. His integrity was well known. They all knew that there was not anything any of them could say to accuse him of any wrongdoing. In fact, if someone had tried to falsely accuse him, the people would have known it was a false accusation because all the people knew he had never taken advantage of his position or his people. Samuel was a faithful man, and that should be the goal of every leader in the church. It should be the goal of every Christian husband and father. It should be the goal of every Christian businessman. We should have the express goal of getting to the end of our lives and being able to leave the greatest legacy of a godly life of integrity. What a treasure this is. What a wonderful blessing to leave for those who come behind us. 
And this, of course, applies to both men and women. All of us have an opportunity to be people of integrity and to leave this greatest kind of legacy. Look at verse 5. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Samuel wants to make sure there are no unresolved issues from his own leadership before he turns the reins over to the new king. He wants public acknowledgement of his integrity. Now, much later, the Apostle Paul will do something very similar to this in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul wrote, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Our goal should always be to keep our conscience as clear as possible at all times, especially in relationship with fellow believers. And we know that we can only do this by God's grace, but this should always be our goal. And, of course, someday we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give account to him for our lives. And the ultimate issue really is not what people think, but what God thinks. No matter what your age this morning, you should be thinking about your legacy all the time because every single day you are writing it. So this is the first element that we see in this passage. But secondly, we see a faithful message. Verses 6 through 18 comprise Samuel's sermon here at Gilgal. He has settled the issue of his own integrity, and now he lays into the people for their sinful desire to have a king. Using legal terminology, you could say that the defendant now turns into the prosecutor. And the premise of this passage is that not only has Samuel been faithful, but so has God. God has always protected Israel and provided for her. So Samuel is going to rehearse all the various ways that Yahweh has done this. His first example is the deliverance from Egypt. Look with me at verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Of course, we all know what happened in Egypt. The people of Israel had become slaves in, uh, to the Egyptians, and they then cried out to the Lord in their oppression and their suffering, and God then sent them Moses and Aaron to deliver them. But notice verse 7. Samuel said, So now take your stand 
that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and for your fathers. This is Samuel's way of saying, buckle your seatbelts because I'm getting ready to unload on you. And the reason I'm calling this a faithful message is because this was not just some sort of feel-good kind of sermon. He's getting ready to blast them over their lack of faith and their sin in asking for a king. His main idea is that this was totally unnecessary because God had always been their king and had always provided for them in the past, even against unbelievable odds and ferocious enemies. In fact, the pattern of their history was that they would turn away from the Lord and embrace idolatry and and then He would send an enemy to oppress them and get their attention. And then they would cry out to God and they would cry out in their affliction and God then would send them a deliverer. And we see this pattern all the way through the book of Judges. I mean, look at verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. Then the Lord sent Jerobel, that is Gideon, and Bedan, that's probably Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, he even included, included himself here, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. Now, folks, this is a great sermon. This is typical of sermons that we find in Scripture. The message is, just look back and you will clearly see how faithful God has been to us. Over and over again, he has provided himself to be gracious and powerful in his provision for his people. And Samuel really is saying the same thing that he said back in chapter 7, verse 12, as he raised the Ebenezer in Mizpah. He's saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. We've always been able to count on the Lord to deliver us. All but the worst crisis of all is always the most recent one. So in verse 12, he points to the one they had just experienced. Look at verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. In other words, you saw this brutal Ammonite coming against you, and he wanted to pluck out all your right eyes, and so you began to plead, Give us a king to reign over us. Their spiritual amnesia led them to demand an earthly king when all along God was their king. This has been a recurring theme of Samuel's sermons. 
in chapter 8, in chapter 10. Here again in chapter 12, he says the same thing. He's pointing out their sinful unbelief and rebellion in demanding a king. He's speaking the truth in love here. This shows he is a faithful messenger. He's not tickling their ears and giving them what they want to hear. He's preaching an unpopular sermon, convicting them of their sin. He's making it clear to them that having a king was not God's plan for them, but it was the result of their own stubborn desires. Listen, sin always needs to be acknowledged for what it really is. Abraham Lincoln once said, If you call a tail a leg, how many legs has a dog? Five? No. Calling a tail a leg don't make it a leg. Calling sin something else does not make it any less sinful. Calling abortion a choice instead of murder does not make it any less serious in the eyes of God. Calling homosexuality an alternative alternative lifestyle does not make it any less an abomination to God. Calling adultery an affair does not make it any less sinful. And we see the very same thing here. Samuel does not brush this aside or ignore it. He hits it head on. He tells it like it is. And then he repeats it over and over and over. He is a faithful messenger, a faithful prophet. And this is the mark of any faithful servant of God even today. Those who are called... To be God's messengers must be willing to proclaim his truth no matter what. Even when it is unpopular, even when people don't want to hear it, they must be faithful to proclaim God's truth. In this case, their sin needed to be confronted. Instead of proclaiming, in God we trust, they were proclaiming, it's a king or bust. But against Nahash, there was no cry to God for help. Instead, now, they are depending on their king, their earthly king, to save them. And yes, their new king, Saul, did, in fact, lead them into the battle against Nahash. But they needed to understand from the Lord's prophet that it was really God himself who gave them the victory, just as it had always been throughout their history. Now, let me just pause right here to apply this to our day and time. This is still very true today. Any spiritual victory that is gained in this age is still the Lord's doing and not man's. Does God use human leaders? Of course he does. But the victory always comes from God and not from human leaders. The leaders are simply the means through which he accomplishes his purposes. We can never glorify men. We must always glorify God. 
But getting back to our text, look at verse 13. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Notice the elements of divine and human here, both elements in this verse. The people clamored for a king, and they were involved in some way in choosing him, but it was the Lord who set the king over them. This is typical of the word of God in emphasizing divine sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time. Even in the Old Testament, we see this principle. But look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Even under the leadership of an earthly king, they needed to understand they were still Yahweh's people and they were still accountable to him. In fact, their king was also accountable to him. This monarchy would be a unique monarchy indeed. It was still technically a theocracy even under the rule of a human king. And notice what verse 14 is saying. It's saying that even though they had sinned in demanding a king, God would still continue to provide for them and bless them if they would obey his word and heed his voice. What's the principle for today? It is the fact that the sins of the past need not derail us for good in the future. Just get back on track with God. Repent and turn back to Him. Acknowledge your sin. Get back under submission to His Lordship. And God says, He's not going to hold it against you. He's going to bless you as you move forward. God will not hold your sin against you forever. He will forgive your sin. He will restore fellowship with Him. Oh, but the other side is also true. Look at verse 15. And if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. You see, the people had to decide if they wanted God's blessing or his punishment. This is a great sermon here. All but now it's time for a sermon illustration. Before the people can even respond, Samuel says in verse 16, Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Buckle up. This last point is going to be reinforced by God himself. Verse 17, Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. Listen, it never rains during the wheat harvest in Israel. Jewish historian Jerome wrote, I have never seen rain in the end of June or in July in Judea. 
While a severe thunderstorm can get people's attention any time of the year, this one especially got their attention because they knew this was no ordinary thunderstorm. This would be comparable to having snow in Miami on Memorial Day. It was not impossible, but highly, highly unlikely. And since Samuel had just announced that God would be doing this, it became one of the greatest sermon illustrations of all time. Listen, Elijah was not the first prophet to preach up a storm. Samuel did it here at Gilgal. God wanted them to clearly understand that even under a human king, he still meant business when he demanded continued submission to him. Of course, this was ultimately for their good. But here he demonstrated it in a way they would not soon forget. And the people were terrified by this. Look at verse 18. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now notice it's not Saul their king they fear. It is still God's prophet Samuel whom they fear. And by the way, don't ever let anyone tell you it's a bad thing to employ fear to motivate God's people. We see that all the time in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here, once again, we see where the people are warned in such a way as to fear the consequences of their sin and unbelief. In this case, though, their fear led to repentance. Look at verse 19. Then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Dale Davis writes, please don't spout any nonsense about how wrong it is to motivate by fear. Why then did Paul write Colossians 3.6 after Colossians 3.5. Now, Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. But verse 6 says, It is on account of these things that the wrath of God comes. God's word uses... Fear to motivate his people, even in the New Testament. Davis continues, What matters is whether there is a true basis for fear. If there is a reason to tremble, we ought to tremble. Neither the church nor individual Christians should be above truthful terror. Oh, but here's the key. If God grants us a sight of our own sin and of his displeasure, we can be sure he does so not just to see us tremble, but to see us tremble and become restored. So in 1 Samuel 12, we see both the severity and the kindness 
of God. We see his wrath and his grace. Paul put it this way in Romans 11:22, "Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off." God's kindness and grace is intended to lead us to fear him, and that's intended to lead us to repentance. I mean, we even have it in our songs. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. God's grace teaches us to fear. Well, that leads us to the final section, which describes a faithful master. What does God do with his people when they have committed a spiritual offense, when they have charted their own course in what is when stripped of all its camouflage, nothing really less than rebellion against God. What does he say to his people when they have come to see how ugly their sin is in his sight? He says, don't fear. Don't fear. You have done all this evil, and yet there is a future and a hope. Look with me at verse 19. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sin this evil by asking for ourselves a a king. In fear, they cry out to Samuel to pray for them and to intercede on their behalf. They now have seen how ugly their sin is before their God. And they now understand they have committed what amounts to spiritual treason against God. But notice Samuel's response in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't wallow in your guilt, but repent and follow the Lord now with all your hearts. Don't be afraid because God is merciful and he will restore you. But the message comes with a warning as well. Look at verse 21. And you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. This is a warning against idolatry, which ultimately would become the death knell of the Israelites. So Samuel's response here is twofold. He says, you can't afford to make yourself miserable by continually hitting the replay button on the memory of your rebellion and keep going over the rotten episode in your mind. No, you have to move forward in renewed devotion to God. But on the other hand, you can't afford to become lax in your single commitment to Him. You can't afford to pursue subtle substitutes for Him. You can't afford to chase that which is futile and worthless and profit you nothing. Those false gods can never deliver you from your enemies. And then comes the assurance of verse 22, For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. 
This is the language of covenant. God divinely chose Israel and he promised never to abandon them. Oh, but notice this is not because of their faithfulness. It is because of his great name. This commitment to them is totally his choice. It has pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. This is the language of divine election. And all this is according to God's grace. It is totally undeserved. Here is grace greater than sin. And of course, this also applies to those of us under the new covenant as well. We are fully saved by God's grace, and yet we're, walk, we're called to walk in fidelity to Him. Under the good news of the gospel, where sin is increased, grace is increased all the more. Well, in verses 23 to 25, we have Samuel's final response. He says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Here we find a promise, a commitment, an encouragement, an admonition, and a warning. Samuel admits that it would be a sin for him if he failed to pray for them. He also made a commitment to them that he would continue to teach them to walk in the good and right way. He urged them to make sure they're following the Lord with all their hearts. And he warned them that if they failed to do that, even under a human king, they and their king would be swept away in God's wrath. Folks, this is an amazing sermon. But I want to close this morning by asking you this question. What kind of legacy are you leaving Are you leaving the greatest kind of legacy? And you know, whenever I think about this, I always think of the legacy of a couple who lived in colonial America in the 1700s. The legacy of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards has been well documented. Now, most of us know Jonathan Edwards' role in the Great Awakening and his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But what we may not be as familiar with is the incredible spiritual legacy that he and Sarah left behind. This couple had 11 children who grew into adulthood. From these children, there were 1,400 descendants that have been traced. Out of these... There were 100 attorneys, 80 holders of public office, 66 medical doctors, 65 university professors, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 3 mayors of large cities, 3 state governors, 3 United States senators, 1 dean of a law school, 
one dean of a medical school, one controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States. One of Edward's most famous quotes is this. Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. No wonder he left such an amazing legacy. What about us? What kind of legacy are we leaving for those coming behind us? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you help us just to grasp this chapter, the significance of it, what it's all about. Lord, uh, help us not to just put it in the category of ancient history, but to know it's part of your living word, your truth that you have revealed to your people, and that it's intended to instruct us, and it's intended to uh, motivate us, and it's intended to... Uh, Build us up in the faith. So, Lord, help us to take these truths, even though it's from the Old Testament, and apply them to our lives. And, Lord, we thank you that we have these truths reiterated in the New Testament as well. But, Lord, we also pray that if there's anyone here in this place today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, has not experienced your saving grace, I pray that they would come to know you in a genuine way that produces genuine fruit of righteousness. And, Lord, we, uh, we pray this morning that you would help all of us to respond to your word as you would want us to. And, Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.